You're listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. We bring expertise on international affairs from Stanford's campus straight to you. I'm Michael McFall, host of World Class and the director of the Freeman Spogli Institute. During the 2016 presidential election, Russian operatives use Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and other social media platforms to spread disinformation in order to divide the American public. Uh, four years later, misleading and false information about the 2020 presidential election is still rampant online. And this time around, more of the misleading information is coming from domestic actors within the United States, not foreign. My guest today is one of the world's experts on tracking and taking down online disinformation, understanding its role, in American politics and more generally. Rene Dresta is the research manager at the Stanford Internet Observatory, which is part of our FSI Cyber Policy Center. She's also involved in the Election Integrity Partnership together with some other groups around the country. We'll hear more about that in a minute. Rene investigates the spread of malign narratives across social networks and assists policymakers in devising responses to problems that those narratives create. Rene, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Let's start with some really basic definitions. Uh, I think for our listeners, there's some confusion sometimes about the difference between misinformation, disinformation, propaganda. What's the best way, you know, what's the way that you like to describe those various different things or, or add things? Maybe those are not the right categories to think in. No, I think those are pretty comprehensive. So we say uh, misinformation is information that's inadvertently wrong. And the person who's sharing it or spreading it um, really usually has somebody's best interests at heart when, they, when they're sending it out. They wanna inform their community. Uh, they wanna you know, keep their family safe. Uh, so oftentimes they believe the information and they go on to share it because of a, of a sincerely held belief. With disinformation, uh, there's an intent to influence and an intent to deceive. So it's not that the content is necessarily false. Sometimes it's not falsifiable. It's just a political opinion. Um, but it's put out in some way by um, something that is not what it appears to be. So oftentimes, the account that's sharing it is fake, or the uh, publication that it appears on is some sort of front. Um, there's a an element of deception to it, so that the people who are sharing it and disseminating it in the beginning know that it is fake and are and are and are doing this quite deliberately. So intent is really uh, one of the one of the big differences there. Interesting. So the category of propaganda would disinformation be a subset of that? that yes, I think it is. So propaganda. Um, I, you know, the definition evolves depending right. on what period in history you look at, right? As, 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 and particularly it evolves. Uh, you know, the um, capabilities, the affordances of propaganda are so fundamentally tied to the technology of its dissemination, right? So the way propaganda looked in the era of television and radio, I think, is fundamentally different to uh, the way that propaganda looks today, and so. I think of propaganda as sort of information with an agenda. And in some ways, you know, that's a very, very, very broad uh, definition. Um, we do think about it segmented according to how overt or covert it is, how meaning attributable versus uh, misattributed or concealed in some way. Um, but ultimately with uh, propaganda, you know, it's, I think, it's long been thought of as something that was kind of the purview of elites. You know, the media and institutions and governments kind of um, colluded in some way. There was financial motivation, you know, the Chomsky model of, of advertising being incorporated into that as well, the motivations of the publications. Um, so propaganda used to be seen as this very kind of top-down way of, uh, of elite opinion management. Um, whereas now, what we have is a, a much, is a flattened system really, where anybody, uh, any group of people, any any motivated uh, influencer can 
can uh, put out information with an agenda and run through the both the creation and the distribution have really been um, opened up to all sorts of different people and groups. Right. Well, that means that anybody can also fight it too, uh, which is kind of interesting, including you. Um, tell us a little bit about what your group, what you personally have been doing uh, during the elections. Tell us, explain what the Election Integrity Partnership is, and tell us a little bit about your recent work on takedowns uh, that you've done. Uh, I think, you know, take it wherever you want. There's been some pretty phenomenal ones, uh, Turning Point USA, really caught my attention, the report you did on that. But just tell us what your activities are to combat disinformation during this election. Yeah, so at the Internet Observatory, um, even outside of an election year, our work focuses on kind of three buckets, right? We work on um, proactive detection. So basically, uh, how, do we, how do we study and understand emergent ways in which information is spreading, malign narratives in particular? If you think of the information, uh, sorry, if you think of um, the Internet and particularly social networks as the technological infrastructure on which information spreads now, propaganda or other types of information, um, understanding how that system is misused um, is, a, is, a, is a critical part of understanding how to fight back. So we work on right. proactive detection. Uh, with a strong component on building technology to enable that, to kind of mine the haystack, if you will, to, to find the needle. Um, the second bucket is really the kind of forensic analysis. So that's where either we see a signal or the platform sees something that it thinks is, uh, is coordinated in authentic behavior is what it's come to be called, some sort of manipulative campaign on its platform. Uh, they want outside researchers to examine the data that they find. So we look at it both behaviorally to understand the tactics of how an operation was executed. And we also look at what the narratives were to understand the geopolitical or other motivations of the actor. And then with all of this research, the, you know, both of those kind of two buckets, forensic and proactive, um, we try to think about what are the policy levers that would potentially mitigate um, these particular types of misuse. And so the research informs the policy suggestions. And sometimes the policy suggestions are made to governments or to you know, members of Congress, uh, but sometimes the policy suggestions are actually made to the tech platforms as well. So a way to say, hey, there's a lot of um, misuse of the Facebook watch tab or uh, you know, spam groups are pushing out fake content pretending that it's live. Uh, to rile people up or to, uh, you know, to grow an audience, maybe the watch tab needs a, an intervention of the following type. And so that's work that we've done individually as SIO for a couple of years now. And with the Election Integrity Partnership, there's a recognition that um, the election is an incredibly high value target. There are so many different groups, uh, foreign and domestic, that have an interest in the outcome uh, and also the capability to influence. And so the goal of EIP was to bring together uh, other phenomenal research organizations with both quantitative and qualitative capabilities um, so that that, you know, <laughs> that vast haystack could be, um, could be more effectively dealt with. And again, what we're trying to do is understand in as close to real time, which is why um, you know, we have uh, phenomenal student researchers who are literally on call who you know, sign up for four hour shifts and are sitting there you know, going through uh, either sometimes they're monitoring for regional keywords, uh, sometimes they're monitoring particular platforms, uh, sometimes they are looking for um, certain activity from various communities, trying to understand how voting specific narratives uh, are taking shape. So suppression, depression narratives, allegations of fraud, 
uh, attempts to delegitimize the mechanics of the election. And so with uh, University of Washington, with uh, Graphica and with DFR Lab, um, we have this kind of consortium that then in turn has outside partners uh, in the form of civil society, as well as government um, organizations, you know, CISA out of the Department of Homeland Security uh, that are participating in the analysis process and also in communicating out to the public what we find. So you're connected to the government, the civil society, uh, the platforms, that's Twitter, Facebook, companies like that, all together. And, and give us an example of a takedown or give us an example of something that you've done uh, with this consortium so far. Yeah, so a lot of it is, um, it's, it's not so much focused on takedowns all of the time. Um, yeah, right. That's Thank one you. of the, yeah, I think it's an important distinction to make because um, there's not, you know, there's, a, I think, a lot of concern that people have um, that this is all, you know, vast um, censorship cabal, right? And that's not the point. The point is not to encourage takedowns, actually. Uh, it's really to, to inform the public. And so oftentimes when there is a takedown, what unfortunately happens is there's a second wave uh, story about the takedown. So we saw this um, yesterday quite prominently in the story that the Washington Post put out uh, in which there was a, you know, a laptop uh, <laughs> obtained in somewhat, you know, sketchy circumstances, um, variety of weird things related to the, to the laptop and the contents on it. Uh, and so the platforms uh, tried to throttle the story, um, not even take it down, Twitter kind of ham-handedly blocked the URL, but uh, Facebook just tried to throttle the story. And while it had time to investigate what was happening, to kind of check in with authenticators and researchers, fact checkers and others, um, to figure out if the story was a disinformation plant. Uh, and in the act of, of doing that throttling, the whole story on social media became about the fact that the platforms were trying to, uh, as hyper-partisan ideologues put it, um, you know, censor the story for uh, for the Biden campaign was how that was read. So a lot of uh, a lot of what we're doing is not advocating for takedowns. We're trying to improve the ability to find these narratives earlier. That's why the proactive detection is so important, because if you can find them before they go viral, you can give fact checkers a chance to uh, to, to come up with the correct information to, uh, to sort of ascertain the truth and put that out there. Um, occasionally, one of the things that I think is, I'm trying to think of the most interesting one. Um, one of our researchers, Jack Cable, uh, found a really fascinating collection of pages, Facebook pages tied to a couple of uh, sketchy domains. One was teamcandiceowens.com. And the name Team Candace Owens, you know, it sounds like it's, uh, it's supporters of, uh, you know, this um, conservative, uh, you know, kind of a firebrand, uh, you know, um, exciting character with a passionate, passionate fan base. And she, of course, had nothing to do with this site. This was just a site that, as it turned out, a group of Macedonian teenagers <laughs> or Macedonian 20-somethings. Yeah, the Macedonians are back, yeah. <laughs> um, so in this particular, so the Macedonians, for anyone who uh, is not deep in the weeds on this stuff, um, there were fake news pages that were run in the 2016, 2015, 2016 timeframe. And when I say fake news, I mean demonstrably false stories. So it's a term that has been politicized, but in its original uh, incarnation, it meant demonstrably false stories. And so they were writing these sensational things like Pope endorses Donald Trump, you know, Megyn Kelly fired from Fox News. So these crazy stories uh, that were then, you know, 
on some random domain, hit a Facebook page, they would trend and they would go viral on Facebook uh, and vast numbers of people would see this content. And interestingly, you know, the Macedonians um, who were running them were largely economically motivated. So this wasn't like Russia where there was a, you know, particular state level objective that they had, um, which, you know, we can talk about. This was really an economic motivation. And so here we have again, <laughs> the Macedonians, um, these, uh, these young people who are running these, uh, these sites, this time pretending to be, um, you know, prominent American supporters of Candace Owens. They, have, they used a, one of these mailbox receiving services so that they had an American address on the, um, you know, the kind of about page of the site. Uh, and what they were doing this time that was interesting was they were ensuring that the content, the, UR, the links were spread on uh, Parlay, the conservative app, Parlay or Parler, it's spelled P-A-R-L-E-R. Um, and what they would do on, you know, so this conservative app has really become a, um, a haven for people who think that Twitter is censoring them or who have actually, in fact, been kicked off the platform. Um, and there are a lot of conservative personalities who are on it. You know, Ted Cruz did a very big uh, announcement that he was joining which he put out on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> but people who feel that Twitter is in some way censoring or disenfranchising them go to this platform. Um, and so the, the enterprising, uh, you know, spammers producing conservative um, content, in this case, largely plagiarizing it, uh, we're putting it out on this small platform. I see. So where Facebook and the larger platforms have developed integrity teams and are actively searching for this stuff, um, and are working with uh, outside researchers who are finding it and flagging it. Uh, some of these smaller apps with very kind of homogenous user bases that some entity thinks is worth targeting for economic or ideological reasons are not really necessarily uh, as on top of it. Interesting. Tell us generally what has been uh, completely non-surprising and predictable in this election compared to 2016 uh, in this space and what has been surprising to you? I'm just curious, just as somebody who's followed this over the years, what's new and what's very, very old? Well, you know, we, I think those of us who started paying attention um, in 2014, 2015 timeframe, um, you know, I myself was looking not so much at partisan politics, but at ways in which um, very small groups of people were able to make themselves look much, much larger through using social media marketing best practices. Right. So the extent to which this took hold with domestics, um, with, with domestic um, you know, ideological groups or um, particular you know, identity communities, um, that actually wasn't really a surprise uh, for me. That was sort of where, you know, where, where I thought this was going to go. But I think I still thought that there would be you know, sort of some connection to um, to reality uh, in in the messaging. Like, I, I kind of thought that we would use the tactics to fight at least about the facts. You know, <laughs> we would use the tactics to fight um, to uh, you know, you you could use amplification tactics, persuasion tactics, or a number of different things. But ultimately, there would still be some sort of shared body of of, of fact that we were fighting about. Um, and what actually has happened is much more of this kind of devolution into like bespoke realities where people are just, you know, operating in there in just complete parallel universes. Right. Um, I mean, you, you popped up in, in <laughs> one of the narratives that, uh, 
that I was looking at, you know, the one that yeah. claims that there's a, a vast color revolution happening oh, in the yes. U.S. And then yeah. you are behind it. <laughs> you no. are, you are part of that. And, um, and so this, you know, the, the mainstreaming of conspiracy theories, the mainstreaming of, um, of conspiratorial communities, the growth, you know, I remember when QAnon started, um, back in uh, late 2017, early 2018, I, uh, I was looking back at an old article I'd read about it when I was starting to get concerned, which was midway through 2018. And I wrote something about, uh, hey, this seems to be becoming a cult, right? This is, this is a little past conspiracy now. Now we're, we're getting into some weird stuff here. Um, and there's a, there's a sentence in there where I'm like, and the groups have, you know, tens of thousands, you know, 10,000 10, members. And now we're like, you know, <laughs> now they're, you know, hordes of people in Q gear showing up to rallies and, and, you know, and the narrative is being, you know, it has just become a topic that presidents get questioned about in, in debate town halls. Uh, so this, that really, the mainstreaming of that kind of, um, alternative reality, I think, is what's been most surprising. Right. And how, again, we're, we're flying at 30,000 feet here, but how generally do you think uh, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, how are they doing compared to the last time around? And you mentioned this New York Post story and the Giuliani, uh, you know, this laptop that somehow the emails got to Giuliani, and we don't know the facts that so we need to say that. We don't want to be part of Right. disinformation ourselves, right? But there was a different reaction uh, by Twitter compared to Facebook. Tell, tell our listeners a little bit about that reaction. And then just generally, how do you think these companies are handling this, this space? Yeah, it's, I mean, first of all, there is such a volume of, of stuff uh, that I think the, uh, you know, the public sees the ones that go viral or become major news stories, but there's just such a steady stream of, of things, you know, when we did, um, and, and not only that, there's a steady stream of things internationally. So while we are focused on the US over here with our election, there is still a whole pile of manipulation happening, uh, you know, around the world, it hasn't stopped. Um, by the, way, the Stanford Internet Observatory is studying as well, just for our listeners, and we'll post yes. that link so you can see that work as well, yes. Yeah, so we're, you know, our, our researchers are, they're extraordinary, you know, bouncing back and forth between um, the latest, you know, Thai military misinformation campaign or disinformation campaign versus, you know, then, then back to your domestic tickets on uh, <laughs> election 2020. Um, but I think that the, the platforms are really much further along, you know, there are integrity teams now, those really didn't exist in their present form uh, back in 2016. A lot of the stuff kind of fell under, uh, you know, fell under the CISO, there was no um, information, <laughs> which we, who is now my boss, right, <laughs> Alex? Um, there is now oh, the... Uh, yeah. Excuse me, but t remind everybody what CISO means, just... Uh, you oh, uh, Chief Security Officer. Right, right. So a lot of the focus on what threats, what information threats looked like in uh, 2016 it was much more around breaches, right? Um, right? Hacks. And so the idea that the platforms would be used, would be turned into propaganda tools um, was something that, you know, DARPA had actually run some, some programs on this beginning in uh, 2012 and kind of extending through 2015, actually asking what happens when this happens. It's very interesting framing. It wasn't if, it was more of a when. But the early indications that it was happening um, were not really taken seriously. And I think that that was a, a big, uh, you know, missed opportunity. 
but now today we have researchers and again that kind of multi-stakeholder consortium that I mentioned with EIP working alongside the platforms and in cooperation with the platforms and then within each platform each of the major platforms there's a significant number of uh, of employees who are who are tasked with ensuring that um, you know that that election integrity worldwide uh, is not um, you know, compromised because of something that they have failed to do. Right. So that's different. Well, that's that's an improvement. That's progress. It sounds like to me. Uh, we only have a few weeks left until the voting stops. I was going to say election day, but many millions of Americans have already voted and are voting today. What's your greatest concern between now and the end of voting, or the day after voting, uh, with respect to disinformation, misinformation? I think the the greatest concern uh, is that the delegitimization narratives are going to be believed, right? And this is this is a thing that's it's um, one of the things that we see. So there are certain claims that are made, isolated incidents that are immediately fact checkable or falsifiable, right? So you can go and you can research what happened with specific ballot incident X, or you know what what precipitated this particular event, and then there is an there is an answer that comes at the end of that, but one of the things that we see is this uh, attempt to by prominent influencers unfortunately to string these events together where instead of an isolated screw up by some post office somewhere it's it's evidence it's confirmatory evidence of a vast plot to steal the election or or uh, it's confirmatory evidence that mail-in vote uh, mail-in voting is unreliable or voting itself is unreliable election machines are unreliable so there's just this constant um the the connect you know connecting not connecting the dots, but but you know the guy on the wall with the red marker, you know, <laughs> circling the wild, you know, the meme of the of the dude, right? <laughs> Everybody, I think, can see in their head exactly the picture I'm talking about um, of the guy with the red the red string saying these two things are connected, you know, and that's what we're seeing, right? That delegitimization right. through the connection, through the purported connection of all of these isolated events, which is what I mean when I say the mainstreaming of this kind of this type of conspiratorial thinking. Um, and the thing that I'm most concerned about is really that that there will be a um, widespread disbelief by 50% of the population, depending on which direction it goes, um, that you know that that the winner is in fact actually the winner, right? That 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 the election was uh, was won fair and square. And moving forward from that, as a country, particularly a country you know stuck in rel, you know low levels of trust with a pandemic going on, you know, just um, social unrest, uh, massive social movements taking shape. Um, I think the major concern for me is the what happens uh, if uh, if 50% of the people don't, you know, don't believe that the election was, uh, was fairly won. Right. And in the specific case of how social platforms are going to be used to create that impression by, by people who are so inclined, uh, I think the real challenge that we have is that any uh, any intervention, any labeling of a of a presidential tweet is now seen as censorship. You know, we've we've really right. just kind of lost the thread on. Uh, you know, we have not yet, as a society, developed um, ways of, of 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 living in a time of high velocity, high virality, um, often completely false stories. And I think that. Uh, this is really a transitional period. 
Well, on that sobering note, just thank you for the work that you're doing and all your colleagues. I can't, I literally cannot think of more important uh, research with policy applications than what you all are doing. And thanks for joining us today, Renee. You've been listening to World Class from the Freeman Spokely Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. If you like what you're hearing, please review us on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know your thoughts. And be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or wherever you're listening to stay up to date on what's happening in the world and why.